Gavin Maya taps for green, the scene sees reclaim. Untap sack of flags, don't go seek the planes, then tune up the stage to pull out your playbill. Doctor's podcast, our in Billy Mitchell and Michael Mapson on the microphone, dripping in mox diamonds, the collector of curtains up on act one of this magic show. Setting the forest so dense it looks decomposed with red lacrevy nights, crush against death shadow on the legendary lake covered in ice and snow. Underneath the surface looks a lonely evil, an avatar so dark it could cause upheaval. The night lunges forward, going for the kill, but death shadow's too tricky, it just won't sit still. It's stuff in denials, compile a stack so thick, the bazooka bug emerges with Gurmax angling. The night takes a swing at the zombie fishes, but falls submerged for such a distance. Forsaken in the haze of the street rape fringes, who wanna suffer out, they don't seek forgiveness. The final breath draws a deafening silence, a sound so sinister no one could describe it. It's like the subtle cracking of a turtle shell, or the surgical extraction of emerging hell. The shards of ice feel a force of vigor, the looming fear releases growing bigger and bigger, until a demon's fingers linger toward the shadow of death, an all-consuming hush. The land goes swept, the night washes up, frozen on the ice. Dried arbors thaw her out in the green sun's light. An expedition map suddenly unfurls, revealing merit lage has rearranged the world. Welcome to the Dark Depth Podcast, or go to place for the modern legacy format. I'm one of your hosts, Billy Mitchell, and I am here with the hundred-handed one himself, Michael Mapson. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited because through the magic of time travel, we are finishing this episode right now with the beginning, which doesn't make sense, but I'm excited to have it done because this was a lot of work. How are you? I am about to start editing this massive podcast that we already recorded, um, so I'm doing okay currently. Uh, current Billy's okay. Billy in like two hours is going to be a madman, and I feel like Billy in like eight hours is going to be like very relieved that this episode's finally out and I don't have to edit it anymore, but uh, no, <laughs> overall pretty good. Um yeah, so just for, I guess, say this up front, I'm sure you saw it when you looked at the episode title, but this is episode 100 for us, which is a huge milestone, I think, for any podcast to, you know, meet. I think I don't think a lot of podcasts usually get to episode 100. I don't know. Is it a huge accomplishment? I could just, uh, you know, I could record 30 seconds every week, put it out, call it a podcast. I could do that 100 weeks in a row. I mean, you could, but we do, like, an hour a week. We do basically every week. We have, I mean, we've missed, like, what, like, three or four weeks in the over the past, like, two years? I think it's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. I, I think people would agree. But So, uh, we do have, I mean, I know this, you know this, we've already talked to them. Once again, the magic of time travel and editing. Uh, we have four really amazing guests, um... Should we say them now, or should we just wait until they come up in the episode? Nah. Yeah. If, you know, if people want spoilers on who's who, uh, we'll have their names in the show notes. I'm going to say this, and Billy might not follow through, but I'm going to claim that we'll have timestamps for when their inter- individual sections start as well. Once again, current Billy says that, that that's going to happen, but editor Billy in two hours might not, so who knows. But they should be in the show notes. I'll try to keep a note there. Um, yeah, and we, we want to make sure that we have all their information, too, because we, we really did find 
for really amazing guests, especially for our 100th episode, talking about the history of Dark Depth. Not, of course, our podcast, but the actual card, Dark Depth, which has you know been around since Cold Snap, uh, back in, what, 2006, I believe, that uh, is Cold Snap. And, you know, obviously it's the basis of our show um, in terms of the title and our imagery, but, you know, it's a really sweet card in a lot of ways and um, historically has done a lot of really good, strong work in the hands of many different talented players and in different forms of the deck, too. So uh, this felt like the best time to actually talk about the history of the deck, Dark Depths. Yeah. Uh, So we won't say too much more because the episode is super long, but I... Just before we get into the meat of the show, I just want to give a quick uh, shout-out slash thank you to uh, Nick Cummings, a.k.a. Volcanic Island on Twitter, and Pierre Francesco, a.k.a. Pierre Peachy on Twitter. Uh, thank you two very much, because um, this was kind of an amalgam of your ideas when we were looking for what to do for this episode. Nick suggested five depth pilots on the show. Uh, one for each 2020 equals 100. So we got four guests plus me, uh, so five. And then Pierre suggested um, a history of the deck. And that's kind of what this is, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this and this honestly took a ton of work and coordination. Once again, we have guests from different time zones and different you know, countries and things like that. So, you know, just you know, thank, thank you, Mapson, for putting this all together because this would have been a, a nightmare for me to try to do. And obviously you're... I guess still recording right from California this week instead of uh, Pennsylvania. So you know, we're you and I aren't even in the same time zone right now. Yeah, yeah, it's been a nightmare, but everybody has been super helpful. So yeah, <laughs> thank you very much to all our guests, and thank you to the listeners. All right. Well, with that, we were gonna send you to our first interview. Hope you enjoy. All right, and we're back. All right, so we are continuing our journey into the different flavors of depth decks uh, for our 100th anniversary. Michael, who's the next person we have? Still really weird anytime you call me Michael instead of Mapson. But anyways, <laughs> um, I'd like to welcome my friend, uh, often known as Negator77. We have Tom Hep on the line. Tom, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Doing great. Thanks for joining us. No problem. I mean, I love Dark Depths, and you guys, you know, I think kind of like it based on the name of your podcast, so it felt like a good fit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's an okay strategy. Well, I don't know if you, I don't know if you um, remember this episode, but I think, like, episode, like, 10 or 15, something like that, there was, uh, Mapson was gone for the episode I was recording by myself. So, like, rather than record, like, for an hour straight, I was like, I'm going to put, my, like, a little break in the middle. So I put, like, a fake commercial. Um, but it was, like, the Negator 77 uh, help hotline for people who have been <laughs> wrongly denied trophies from Negator 77. Because there was a point where you had, like, what, like, like 40 or 50 trophies in one season? Uh, I think they topped out at 60. Oh, my gosh, that's so many. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, struggled to get, like, five in a season. The idea of actually getting above 10, let alone, you know, above 50 or 60, is, it's just crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that it's, yeah, it speaks to the individual, just based on the amount of time that you have to invest to do that, but, meh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it helps, too, because, I mean, like, you're, if, I think you're playing decks 
that you know allow you to have a quicker league than you know someone playing like you know miracles you know, five years ago or um, someone who's playing like bank control. Yeah, you can you can always see that even historically going back to before. I played a lot uh, when I was just starting out on Moto. It was Eric Landon that was kind of doing the, you know, lap in the field with trophies, and most of that was with Black Red Reanimator at the time. So most seasons you see, you know, Newton won a couple, and that's Elves, which is a little bit bad. So like a lot of times you're seeing these faster combo decks, or even the, the, when Delver wins it, that's not like. I think the most, it's just not crazy. The most impressive one, to me anyway, was when Pokemoki won when a. Mr. White won with uh, basically all variations of pile controls, like decks. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, you, <laughs> you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna trophy that many times with a deck that probably takes two and a half hours per league. When you know I'm doing a league in 55 minutes, you know, it's it's not quite the same thing. If you if you end up trophying um, that many times with deck activations and getting back your you know, punching fire or whatever you definitely deserve it exactly so yeah league rates are just how much you play what your win rate is and how fast you get through the leagues so well that we now that we have you here uh probably best to talk about dark depth um you have a very long history of playing the deck i mean you're one of the people i think people would consider one of the premier dark depth players on mtgo you know when you're when you're actively playing um, what's, what's your history with the deck? Uh, purely accidental. Um, <laughs> I, there was a, uh, it was a Star City Games event. It was before they even have, they had the Opens. I think they were like 10Ks or 20Ks. Um, and they just had one in Oaks, Pennsylvania, uh, in a warehouse that was essentially attached to a dog show that I wanted to go to anyway. And I'd already played Magic, so I was like, well, I don't really play Legacy. Never really touched Legacy. But hey, there's they're literally attached. I can go do both. So I just went on to the source, you know, the most reliable Magic the Gathering information site of all time, and uh, I saw a Meritocracy. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And some people like kind of turned it into like a black green depths list, which I guess would eventually be basically the Turbo Shell. So I just made some personalized changes that made no sense because I didn't like a couple of cards. Like, I threw some explorations into the list and just went and played in the tournament. Had a ton yeah. of fun. Hated the deck, but had a ton of fun. <laughs> I was like, oh, this format's great. You know, the people were all friendly. Yeah, just really enjoyed it, so it's like, oh, I'm going to keep playing this. And from there, set about building uh, a depths list that I personally enjoyed. And eventually, I don't know, give or take six months, I ended up with my own bug list and ran that for years. When you copied those lists, like, were the initial lists black-green? Were they bug? Like, what were they? So, it was, like, initially a port from a vintage deck, I believe. So, I think the vintage deck may have been mono-black, um, if I'm recalling correctly. And I think, yeah, it was base black-green. So, I think the, the initial lists had the, the Elvish Spirit Guides and um, all of those traditional Turbo Depths cards. So the, the shell back then is probably not that far off of what it eventually ended up being. A lot of the core cards are just the same. So yeah, it was, I didn't play it quite like that because I was like, oh, well, I don't like the card disadvantage of these Elvish Spirit Guides. I'll replace them with uh, Explorations. And then like in the second round of the tournament, you realize that this deck only has like 22 or 23 lands. Exploration's probably not a really good card. <laughs> like, even though you think you're accelerating to your land-based combo, 
that's a really bad idea. So, <laughs> but I think the lists that they were running, the people that were actually putting thought into and running the deck, as opposed to me just taking it in blind with no matches, uh, were running something close to a traditional black-green turbo shell. I do often recommend that people, you know, don't <laughs> make changes to a deck before they've played it. Uh, having years of messages from people telling me that they tried card X, Y, Z, <laughs> and it didn't go well. Yeah, generally, I would advise anyone that's trying a brand new deck, especially one that's seen results, um, to at least try it as is <laughs> for some number of matches until you can come to some, come to some sort of conclusion. So what drew you to the bug shell? Because you said you played the black green and then you added the blue later. Uh, yeah, so the, the thing about turbo that really turned me off immediately was how inconsistent it was. Um, the mana is just atrocious. You're talking about a 22-23 land deck most of the players didn't go to 24. Some turbo players eventually ran 24, but it was 22, 23, I think, at the time. And you're talking a deck with Sajiri Step, which is colorless mana, essentially, for the deck. Eight combo lands that either don't produce mana without Urborg or are colorless land with stage. Uh, a bog, which is basically just a swamp. And at the time, a ghost quarter, which, depending on the variation over the years, is ghost quarter or wasteland. So you're, you're, you're into double digit lands that don't make your colors in your deck and a 22 land deck so <laughs> you're kind of there was just so many hands where you just don't have green mana in your opening hand and you're just staring at your crop rotation well if i draw green maybe i can win like that's just and at the time the mulligan rules weren't nearly as flexible as they are today <laughs> so i thought the deck was just horribly inconsistent on the mana front um, and then on top of that there were so many situational cards in the list and you're you're playing in a format where card selection is just amazing. So all the blue decks just have, and most of the combo decks have Rainstorm Ponder and whatever else, and you're sitting here drawing, and if the game goes on at all, you're drawing Not of This Worlds and Elvish Spirit Guides and you know, just the step off the top <laughs> when you can't, when you're playing against the Swords to Plowshare deck. I was like, well, this is just miserable. Like their average top deck is just a hundred times better than this garbage that's coming off the top of the deck. Um, even needles in game ones and a lot of matches just aren't particularly relevant. Um, so I was like, okay, well, how do I go about solving this? And so Bug went all the way up to 29 lands with the Mox Diamonds. Um, and that basically fixed all of them. There were no color consistency issues at that point because I also got to add Brainstorm. So between all the extra lands, fixing the color sources plus Brainstorm to dig for even more, there's just, and the moxes, it just fixed the mana, essentially. So the deck didn't have any consistency issues anymore. And the situational cards, one, I was running less of them because I got to cut four of them for Brainstorm. And then on top of that, Brainstorm, yeah, did Brainstorm things. And you, know, you draw the step, oh, it goes right back in the deck. Um, that, that sort of fun stuff. There's even situations where you could draw it where they'd seen it in your hand with this card, so they thought they were safe. And you drew a Brainstorm, and you Brainstorm in a crop rotation and kill them with the protections that's stuff like that's just which is really fun so my two biggest issues that's how i solved them in my own head yeah drawing step is definitely one of the worst feelings in the world so i totally get that it's interesting to me to hear you say that you were trying to fix the mana issues 
because I know whenever I played the Bug Depths deck, I struggled a lot with the mana. <laughs> um, I, I know you and I have personally talked about this, but that that still to this day is like the one version of Depths I just like never figured out how to win games with. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand what happened. I would have, I would have, I wish some of it would have could have been like recorded, so we could have like gone back through your games or something. Because I don't, because we're starting from a baseline of twenty two, twenty three lands. We're literally adding six or seven additional lands, <laughs> all of which make colored mana. So there's literally two extra gemstones, two. Um, two mana confluences and then essentially fetches, which go get all the colors, and then four diamonds on top of that, which turn any of the colorless lands into mana. I don't know how you were having mana problems. <laughs> I don't know, 20. man. I just know I couldn't win. <laughs> I know the sources were like 22 black sources, and it was like 17 or 18 green sources, and then on top of that, brainstorms to dig for addition. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> You must have just had the worst run of variants ever. <laughs> I mean, it was maybe some amount of variants, probably a good amount of user error. You know, these things Poss happen. Possibly. I think I can count on one hand the number of games I lost in that issues in six years running that version of the deck. <laughs> so I know you, you know, played the bug version, but you also were kind of pioneering like the rainbow version. Um, which, I mean, you, you talk about some of the cards, right? You're playing things like Gemstone Mines, uh, City of Breath. What, I guess, well, one, what's different about the Rainbow version from the Bug version? Um, and two, like, why would I even want to play the Rainbow version, potentially? So I ran the Bug version straight through, I guess, towards the end of 2019. So what had happened at the time was just strong printings for other decks just caught up to the deck. So Bug's disruption package was essentially all blue-black. So all discard spells, but then on top of that, you have Decays, you had Assassin's Trophy, um, the blue cards in Flusterstorm, and basically Veil of Summer basically countered every single piece of interaction in the entire deck. And then on top of that, Oko was floating around at the time, and that card invalidated Mox Diamond in a way that just really made the deck almost not functioning. Because if you play Mox Diamond, chuck one of your lands, and that's how you're fixing the colored mana sources, and they just hit it and turn it into an elk, you're, you're, you just fall to pieces. Um, and various other printings made other decks stronger as well. So the deck kind of just aged poorly, I guess is the best way to put it. And it just wasn't fast enough anymore. So a lot of the stuff that I used to do was set up a you know turn three combo and then virtually port various decks um just sit there do nothing accumulate cards like the, the instant speed interaction the crop rotation the bluster storms and stuff like that and that just wasn't reliable anymore because they were they were hitting these bombs underneath of that you know so turn two devastating card and then they could just sit behind their interaction too or the other combo decks just got so much faster and nastier with some of the printings over the years. You know, whereas before, you're looking at like primarily like Ant and Sneak and Show, eventually it ended up being like Doomsday and decks that are just very capable of just beating you underneath <laughs> of what you were doing. So the bug version with Mox Diamonds, um, I think Black Green kind of similarly fell into some of the space. They just got the grind plan or the playing slow plan with those decks just got so much worse and mm -hmm. the other decks just got so much faster. Mm -hmm. 
um, with printings over the years. So it just, it just didn't work anymore. So I was testing um, in the fall of that year for the format championships. Um, I'd qualified with Bug and it just wasn't good enough. Like I knew going into a field of however many people it was, 24 or 32, I forget what it was that year. But I was looking at the field and it was like four or five DNT decks, you know, various. And it just, deck just didn't line up. So I had to start testing Turbo again. And even though I didn't really particularly like it, that's what I ended up playing just because I thought, you know, I'm not good enough with any of these other decks to go beat, you know, however many ringers with a random strategy. So I'm going to stick with Depths. So I stuck with Turbo and I was on that for probably about a year. Um, before just being so miserable that I decided that I needed to play the blue cards again. And yeah, that's how Rainbow came apart is it came about as I wanted the I wanted the extra interaction for the combo decks, uh, specifically the fluster storms and the stifle. And yeah, so I kind of built that. And the biggest difference between that and the original bug list is it's just it's just more all in. It's just faster. It's not looking to go long or you know, play the virtual port game with people. It's looking to just kill people as soon as possible, and I think that's just where the format took the deck. Um, I don't particularly love the strategy. You know, old school bug would do things like allow you to play the long game versus miracles and just stuff like that, where the games were just really intricate and you could try and outplay people and set up certain spots. And I just, for this type of deck, the format moved away from that, where that just wasn't reliable enough. And so, if I had to play. A turbo version, that was the type of turbo version I wanted to play, where I still feel like I have game against all the combo decks, but you know, it still has fair chances against most of the fair decks, or at least that's where it was when I stopped playing about a year ago, a year and a half ago. Yeah. I remember my two favorite things about Rainbow Depths, uh, the first one being the number of people who still brought in Submerge, even though there was no force in the deck. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just remember thoughts using so many people on turn one and being like, "Oh, look at this idiot." To be fair, the cards that were coming out were sometimes so bad or so useless that it didn't really hurt them that much. And I did have situations come up every now and then where they would get to five mana, so it wasn't totally dead. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, and then the other was. All the, all the conversations, the arguments, some might say, on if Once Upon a Time was a playable card or not. I mean, it's a playable card in the same way lots of <laughs> cards are playable. It's just, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> card was excellent in the deck. I maintain that. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe it was ever um, good enough in the turbo shells. In other shells with more creatures... I can see it, but it let me keep so many hands. I don't like it. This my 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 strategy with all of the turbo shells is that uh, post London Mulligan is that if you don't have a direct path to the combo, you ship the hand one hundred percent of the time, unless it's like post board and you have two or three pieces of, inter pieces of interaction versus a specific type of deck. So if you're playing Storm and you have two Fluster Storms and Discard Spells, sure. If you're playing, you know, versus Reanimator and you have a Ley Line and a Surgical, sure. But <laughs> other than that, other than a specific reason to keep a hand, you know, or you're playing against TS, um, and you have the uh, 
acceleration piece for the turn one collector roof. So stuff like that. But other than that, 100% mulligan if you don't have the exact path, an exact path to the combo. And I stuck with that for the entirety of the time I played those decks. So any card that says there's a percentage chance you're not going to find the piece you need is not a card, not a hand that I'd feel comfortable keeping with the deck. Yeah, I, I mean, so, you know, I totally do get where you're coming from. And I think it's kind of the same argument you hear people make um, when talking about like Death Shadow and Modern, when people would argue like, can you keep the hand that has four street race? Like the hand could be anything. Uh, and, you know, most people would say no. I just personally always felt like there were so many good hits off the Once Upon a Time. Like, I, you know, I would look at my hand and figure out, okay, like, what can this Once Upon a Time hit to be effective? And, you know, sometimes it wasn't enough, but, like, a lot of times it felt like, okay, I can hit a Stage or I can hit a Hex Mage, and either one of those will, like, very easily win me this game. So, Sure, but that's only in the one direction. So if the missing piece is the depths, it doesn't work. So then well, you're just on. Then you're just searching for a four of at that point. You're not. You you can't hit the hex mage or the depths to go or or the stage to go with the depths. You have to hit exactly the depths. So if you don't have, I mean, if you're on like a four of elvish or claimer list, then you can start to justify it. That's what I'm saying. The creature heavier lists. Once you start getting into that and knight of the reliquary, then you're you're talking eight to twelve hits that could be paths to it. And then it starts to make a lot more sense. But if it's just the four depths. And the once upon a time doesn't hit any other cards to get the depths, then eh, I don't like it as much. Hmm. That makes sense. Like, so it's a matter of density more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I understand that, that, that you know there's a there's a there's a threshold where the math will just work. <laughs> it's like if you have a search yeah. card, you don't have to have everything in your hand in a lot of decks, um, yeah, because just the odds are that you'll hit it. But with the once upon a time and depths specifically. If you don't have cards that that hits that find the depths, I don't think you can keep hands that have that and not the depths, unless you already have something else with it. So, you know, if it's once upon a time and crop rotation, sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, the, the it's funny because like you know we've done a hundred episodes now, and the amount of things that I learned from depth specifically, I just think just because the playstyle so it's different from what I normally play, you know the. Delver and Hogak and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of interesting play patterns that I, I learn each time I play decks um, that I don't get from other decks in, in Legacy. Yeah, it's definitely definitely a lot different, and it's different across the types, too. So, like, the Once Upon a Time conversation completely shifts once you end up in shells that have Forever Claimers or that have Knight of the Reliquaries or that have, back in the day, Dark Confidants. You know, there's various points where... You know, you're either not as hyper focused on the combo as turbo shells are, where you're going for more of a grind plan, or you have more creatures, and then it just then it just gets there. God, you mentioned Dark Confidant. I miss playing with that card so much. <laughs> I know you. I know you would always rag on me for playing it, but oh man, card is definitely back. such fun memories. I'll let that one slide this time. <laughs> <laughs> couple rapid fire questions if you will sure uh favorite matchup to play for any of the versions yep any version miracles versus bug original bug that was just so good the games would go so long and it's just so weird to look at the the, the bug depth shell and think 
that it would be favored, but various. I'm not talking about like the Sensei's Divining Top. It was a miserable matchup where uh, we were huge <laughs> underdogs during the top era, but post top era, yeah. that matchup was so fun. And I think the longer the game went, uh, if once you actually knew the matchup and knew how to sideboard it, the more favored Bug was, which is just not how I ever envisioned the matchup would go because I was just so used to being a massive dog against the top versions. But you can sit there and just develop your lands and just play the control role and if they ever do anything you can kill them because you have so much instant speed interaction and fluster storms that they can't play through and it's just such a cat and mouse game i did like a series of like eight or ten games versus uh versus uh well he doesn't go by white faces anymore but versus calum and uh it's just probably the most fun exhibition series i've ever had just because of all the back and forth so i loved that matchup I actually loved playing Verse Miracles too. I actually liked playing against the top version as well. Honestly. No, I don't think so. <laughs> the top version is just—it's—it's it's just all about that card. Like you can't beat a floated terminus basically ever, um, unless you're running hyper-specific cards or you know doing things like and step decaying the the top. Or it's just there's some interactions where you can play around it, but it's just—it's just so good. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say I was not playing a lot of depths during that time. So you definitely would have played way more than I did. And I, I could definitely see that matchup getting old. But I, I think since I was still, like, newer to it, it was, I don't know, I thought it was fun. Definitely, definitely interesting. And I could see how it could be very frustrating. But maybe I'm just a masochist. I, I <laughs> like playing against Miracles in general. That was definitely interesting. I had lots of interesting matches versus it's just... We were heavy dogs because a lot of the cards that more in more recent years or powerhouses against them were just garbage because of the top terminus interaction like safekeeper is one of the best matchups versus the white decks generally and that card just it's just laughably bad versus in the face of terminus <laughs> like how oh, your your answer to their answer is just going to get wiped with your 2020 all right that's sweet <laughs> So, what do you think is like the most common or biggest mistake you would see new pilots making? On depths? Yep. I mean, it's hard to say because I haven't really watched too many people to be able to say that I see it. I know that the mistake that gets made against depths is just wastelanding the lands away too fast. Just firing off wastelands on the first land they see. Lots of Delver players do that. But from the depth side, Probably a lack of sideboarding skill is probably the biggest thing. You see sideboards for the depths shells, and there's just no way they map out correctly. And just from afar, that kind of tells me that they probably don't really have an understanding of what cards are coming in where. Or if they do, they're bringing in too many of them and diluting the deck, things like that. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's probably the biggest thing that comes to mind. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good one. I know. Um you and like Jonathan Sukenik used to do those streams where you'd like go over the depth sideboard. I wonder, um, you know, it's been a couple of years, so I wonder how applicable they still are, but that might help uh, any new players kind of get an understanding of like the fundamentals. Yeah, the deck hasn't changed very much. Like, um, there's been a player that's been running some turbo shells to some decent challenges finish challenge finishes the last month or two that I've seen. Um, deck's really only like six or seven cards and they're all support cards a couple sideboard slots here and there one or two changes to the main deck so a lot of it's probably still applicable what is your best piece of advice for somebody who is picking up 
tap strategies in general? I mean, there's tons of resources everywhere, so it depends on their level of experience playing the game. So if they're playing, picking it up from scratch, um, you could probably just watch any number of, read any, I mean, the, the Depths Discord's there, there's tons of information there. If you want to go way back, um, the source still has a ton of information. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of videos on YouTube from a variety of people. The shell's been popular enough for long enough that you could find any, if, if you just Googled Depths legacy videos or, or you just searched on YouTube for it, you'd probably find videos from like, I know Jarvis has done some. Um, I did the Channel Fireball one with Anurag. Um, my channel has a few videos on it. Uh, I know you have done plenty of depths related stuff. So yeah, I would just find some stuff and try and watch it and then just take a list that's semi-recent um, and give it a spin. Because basically reps talking to people and watching other people play are the three main ways to probably get better with it fast. Billy, anything else you want to ask or say? I mean, no, I mean, I, that was really great. I mean, like, once again, the deck is so interesting and, like, the amount of time that I've run... I mean, I think... I've, I was actually trying to look. I think I've run into you three times when I'm 4-0 in a league and you somehow knocked me out. Um, so, so um, just, you know, being able to hear your thoughts on how, how to play decks like that. Because, I mean, even... The idea of having a hand that actually has a a good plan, not just a, a mystery box. Actually, trying to make a deck be able to support itself rather than rest uh, rest on the fact that it can be explosive. Um, actually, going for consistency. I think there's a lot of things there that, even though I, you know I don't play depth particularly often, right? That's still something that I can translate to uh, playing Blue Red Phoenix and Pioneer, or you know even playing Delver and in, in Legacy. So. No, it's just a lot of, I'm just trying to soak it all in right now. Yeah, I mean, every deck's different with the plans, so I wouldn't uh, apply my mulliganing strategy to a Delver deck. <laughs> I have no idea if that translates. I just mean there's, uh, you know, plenty of different plans that the Delver list could have that's different than Depths. But yeah, the, the thing with the Depths, with my mulligan strategy with it, is it just mulligans really well. At the end of the day, you're A plus B, and... You know, for the B, you have multiple paths with the Hex Mage in the stage. And <laughs> the number of games and matches I've won on moles to three and four is just astronomical. And it has lots of five card hands that have the complete combo plus a piece of disruption. So why settle for something that may or may not get there or, you know, see what's in the box when your five card hand can beat 60% of the format? <laughs> Well, thank you for coming on with us. Really appreciate you stopping by the show. Or just really, it's really cool to have Negator Seventy Seven on the Dark Depths podcast. So, uh, thanks for stopping by for our one hundred. Yeah, anytime, I appreciate the invite. Yeah, thanks. Take it easy, guys. We'll be back in a little bit. All right, and we're back. All right, well, we have another special guest I'm very excited about. Um, this actually, you know, was one of the GPs, believe it or not, um, that I remember the most watching involved, I think, one of the coolest finals that I've ever watched. And, you know, you actually 
our special guest actually won two different GPs, which I think makes it the first time we've ever had a GP winner. I mean, Mapson, I guess, is a GP runner-up, but, you know, two-time GP winner is a little cooler, I think, right, Mapson? Just rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's welcome to the show Rodrigo Tagores. How are you? Hello. Very good. You're in the hot Spain. <laughs> Ooh. Is it, like, in like 90s there? Or I guess, well, you're in Celsius, right? So I don't know what... We are in Celsius, so it's uh, around 40 grad Celsius, and I think that's over 100 Fahrenheit. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's, that's a little too hot for me. <laughs> We've been rocking nine, like high 90s for the past couple days, but yeah, definitely not over 100. Yeah, very, very hot. Well, thank you for joining. I'm really excited that we got we got you on to talk about you know depth. Yeah. So, uh, Rodrigo, I was really excited to have you on because you were the first person I saw playing green white depths. You know, I think you told me that you were not the one who originated the deck, but I I've always kind of associated with you a little bit. Um, but if you could just give us your history playing depths in general, like what drew you to Merrily strategies initially? So I have played lands one or two times in the past when before playing more Dardeps and only my own Dardeps just because someone lent the deck to me. But I the first time I picked up deck uh, depths was because uh, the end solver was beating me fairly regular on on challenge and leagues. And he was also doing pretty well with it, with turbo depths, just Limbrak, Not of This World, uh, Sylvan Keeper, and other turbo cards. And that was the start. Then also there was a time where Negator 77 was also crushing, not the f in the past when he was when he was trophy leader uh, a lot of time earlier, but he was playing a black uh, a back deck with Flusterstorm, and I made my own deck with this kind of of the blue splash, and I just I think I made the highest trophies I have done in leagues with that kind of deck. It was just you sideboard the the mana base of the negator was very bad, so I just played the basics main deck. And sideboarded the the blue lands, the vo the underground and the tropical, and the deck worked pretty well. <laughs> it's so funny to hear you say his mana base was bad because we um, I don't know what order this is going to come on, but we interviewed him uh, yesterday, and he was talking about how the <laughs> mana base in his deck was like so strong. So it's really funny to hear you picked up his deck and just immediately yeah. changed that. Also, the mana base is strong, but playing gemstone mine is sometimes, nah, sometimes great or not great. I'm, I'm, I have played a lot of gemstone mine, but sometimes the card is so bad, and other times the problem is that I'm a basic land lover. I need to have basic lands in my deck. I can't live without basic lands. I. That's also one reason I don't like to play tests that much because all the not having the insurance of basic lands is always like eh, I like them. Yeah, there's a, a big safety there. Like I mean, like the options are you can either have basics and not have to worry about wasteland or blood moon, or you can like just go super hard on the non basics, but then you're just like never beating blood moon or like back to basics, and I that I have trouble with that myself. 
Uh, that's it's just something I like. That's also the reason maybe I think the Negator's mana base is bad, but not it has not to be bad. The deck is good for sure. So it's just for me and my playstyle. I like to have basic lands and not go just on yeah. Opponent has double wasteland and you lose the game sometimes. Okay, so you started with Bog and then. Uh, where did you go from there? Like, did you stick with Bug for a while, or what? What happened next? I played Bug quite a while. There was one day I, I searched this up because I I wanted to know. It was on on August on two thousand nineteen. There, there was my first list published with Green White, and. I searched it also in the same range of month, the uh, other list, and there was uh, the 3rd of August, there was a player named Ovate, Ovate. It seems like an Asian player who only has two results on Magic Online, that is that week and the day before my 5-0 with green-white gets, that is both with green-white. And they played uh, a similar deck list. I, I have it's it's quite similar though to the one that played like like giver of runes to beat cards like uh Rena six that came out a few months earlier Tomic distinguished advocates to also stops loam it stops wasteland it's just a very good card and just uh Elvis reclimber which I think is a card that was printed that month uh so and that was the, the first time, also, I'm not the first person to play green-white, I'm the second. I think I played against them in the league, and I say, whoa, this deck looks very good, and they was they were able to 5-0, so I just copied the deck list, more or less. And instantly trophied, so can't be bad. <laughs> no, and obviously the deck was made for a different meta, right? I think having to deal with Ren and Thicks and recurring wastelands is definitely a different animal, but like... A lot of the cards in this deck hold up to like the current day builds. I mean, uh, I'm not embarrassed to have Giver of Runes in the deck. I mean, Tomic is still a very um, interesting threat, um, you know, both in the air and you know just protecting your lands. And like things like Knight of Autumn, um, Ramming Up Excavator, even are you know found in main decks from time to time. Even so, it's, it's this deck really did help hold up really well. Yeah, so the, the only real change is that this deck played Forgiver Runes, uh, one Gadok Teak, one Scavenger Ooze, and the Atomic. And you can still play those cards. So the deck is almost on the same spot of, of it wasn't three years ago. And it still makes 2020s from a Maverick Shell. I think that's the, the biggest advantage of this deck that you can just play both roles to a uh, great success because yeah Knight of the Relicary is still an amazing card in Legacy yeah, I mean it's definitely a card that I think people tend to forget about until it's a 7-7 <laughs> attacking them um, but it, it plays offense and defense just so well and you know especially in this deck where you you get the fast starts with you know a, dry, a green sun zenith and the dried arbor um, or Mox Diamond in it with a turn two Knight of the Reliquary. Like, it's, it definitely can put some pressure on your opponent. Yeah, for sure. 
So one of the questions I have for you is, I still kind of think of you as a Storm player too. Um, you know, it's hard not to, like if anybody watched your finals win, um, I think a lot of people kind of associate you with Storm, but also obviously you play this. I know you just play a wide variety of decks and on stream you've been like playing, it feels like everything under the sun, but uh, being such a big Storm fanatic, what is it that keeps bringing you back to green white? Because I think you are also a very long time proponent of this deck. I think I'm a combo player, but I don't like to play the the turn one, turn turn two combo decks. Um, I always played a storm like it was a control deck. Like you grind your opponent out to death instead of just going crazy for their throat. So that's something that happened. Also, I know Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus Cormangel uh, does the same. Like we played Storm, like not sometimes you you have the kill on turn one and that's fine. But the the good thing is you with discards with bait spells you ended up grinding up your opponent until you could resolve a business spell. That was something I liked a lot about Storm, and I think this Maverick deck or the or, uh, green white depth deck or the or the black uh, depth deck was also like so you you just keep putting your opponent in the worst spot that you can to not always win with the combo but when they are completely uh, drained or out of options you just uh, kill them with like tendrils or or a twenty twenty like the the green white depth deck does that. Sometimes your opponent loses so much resources killing your your knights and so that uh, twenty twenty comes and finishes the job. I think it's almost the same kind of of deck. I also like to play the vintage uh, combo control decks, like not the not the grindy Renan six Oko decks, but the EOS and whatever Yawmoth will, you can, you can cast. So the, that, that deck, that, well, I guess that version of the deck definitely plays mo more to your playstyle then. Yeah, and both, both, both plans, you can, sometimes you play discard, sometimes you, you, you play creatures of disruption. So I think that's what I like when playing. I don't like to play the, the, Tempo decks that I, I always call it like uh, I don't like to play the decks that win with small attacks. Like mm -hmm. I want to to have a oops I win button usually. Wow, I uh, I think our playstyles are very similar, and it's weird. I don't think I ever really thought about how much I like combo control until you we were talking, and I was just like thinking about the decks I've played. I was like, oh yeah, that's. Um, that's very much my style. Um, I mean, I think you and I have a lot of overlap in decks we like anyways, like Ant, Amulet, this. Yeah, I think we also like Primeval Titan. It's a good magic card. <laughs> Just for six mana. That's a bargain. So I wanted to ask, I, I know you've had the opportunity to play with Minsk and Boo. How has that card been for you in the deck? Because I haven't had the chance to play with it yet. The card is 
very very good so i knew it was good when it was when i read it on the spoiler i thought this was a bit better than it was because the second ability is not a cause to sacrifice but it's still great just it's uh you draw cards you make damage and you create a token and the, the best thing is it cannot be teferi because i in magic online i play uh, paradox zone but sometimes I just teferi it and yeah, that's a lot of tempo loss for your 5-man enchantment. It comes earlier and it's harder to deal with. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to try it. I, I also love Paradox Zone. Um, my issue hasn't even been teferi, it's been like when they just besage you it. <laughs> yeah, so, or Force of force of Vigor, or it's one more mana that's also something. Yeah, I mean, Myth can boot, just, like, it comes down. It I've only played against it once, but, like, the the game literally was just, like, here's a 1-1 here's a one, one hamster, here's a 4-4 four, four hamster, here's a 7-7 seven, seven hamster, and then I just got a bist for a couple turns until I died, so. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, a couple, uh, I'm trying to remember what, what our rapid-fire questions are. For the listeners, I am not in my usual setting, so I had this written down but I'm not as prepared. What is your favorite matchup to play featuring Merit Lage? So I like to play the game against Delver a lot and also against Lance. Against Delver is fine to play against them. It's a good matchup. It's a bit in your favor, but still hard to play. But it depends if you are not playing all the day against Delver, it's great to play against it. But I enjoy the Lance matchup also a lot. It's You have to take a lot of hard decisions, and I think Lance is a great matchup to play with the green-white deck. Not with the, with the black-green, but Knight does a lot of work there. That that is a fun matchup. I do, uh, I I do definitely have some good memories of Green White versus Lands. Um, next question: What is one common mistake you see newer depths pilots making? I think the biggest mistake is that they try to go for the for the combo too fast. Like, I like to play a very slow game and not combo not combo until I need to in some matchups. Other times they just, yeah, I can make a 20-20. Why not? But that makes you be quiet on the back foot if it works bad. So I think that's, that's the biggest mistake. That's really good advice, too, because the number of times me learning the deck, trying to go for it, and... If I wait one more turn, I can have protection with a, a Sejuri step. Or if I can wait you know, two more turns, I can play around Wasteland, and I can play around um, Submerge or something like that. And you know that, that definitely punishes me, punished me uh, first learning the deck. Yeah, for sure. But that is like, I have to go for the combo because it's not going to be better. But then you draw the not of this world or whatever answer you, you had, and that's what like... If I waited one more turn, mm-hmm. yeah, I I've played in you know a handful of games like side by side with Tom Hep, and 
he more so than anybody has taught me how to be patient like we uh he is it's it's weird to say this for how fast he manages to get through his games but he is one of like the most patient players i think i've ever interacted with yeah i think i think patience is undervalued in magic and i'm also a very patient player and sometimes a big tip of this is know what is your opening doing and what he will do in the next turns and that is that is very important with the with the by knowing all the opponent's decks and the chances that you gain this by playing other decks and not always being like the one trick pony they call it yeah, definitely just having some perspective, I think, is, is just it's huge. I mean, like, just, there are definitely some situations where, you know, as a, as a Delver player, I'm like, well, you know, there's no way I can lose from here. And then, you know, my opponent doesn't even care about the, the amount of cards I have in hand or the creatures on the board. They they already have what they need, you know, in their graveyard, and I'm, I'm actually dead next turn. Like, I think kind of understanding where people are coming from uh, helps a lot, when you're especially when you're trying to play decks that are attacking from different perspectives, different angles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agree. On a similar note, what is um, what is your biggest piece of advice for newer players, or newer depths players? Biggest advice? I think it's the same. Be patient and don't try to rush it. I think that's the, the same advice. I I like to be, to be very patient while playing and and try to extract the most value out of each of my cards and the newer players not in 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 depths but i think in general try to to do like i can play this card i'm gonna play this card while in my head i try i can play this card later if i don't play it now can i extract even more value in the future and that's always my my question. Sometimes even being too too greedy and ending up with a hand clogging of spells that I never casted. Yeah, I mean, I think that's huge. I mean, like you don't have to use the resources, and I think if you present a board that has to be managed, and you only use five cards, and your opponent uses seven cards, right? Like when you start that second second volley of you know the game, like you still have two cards in hand. Um, and I, I think people like to try to use everything, but you know, especially in this where we are right now, there's a lot of cards that aren't really great in multiples. Like something like, I mean, Merktide Region is the one that comes to mind. Um, but I also do feel like there's kind of diminishing returns with having like, you know, three. Uh, well, yeah, I think three like reclaimers or something like that. Like once you get past the second reclaimer, it, it's not as potent so i think kind of keeping those back and focusing on a a plan that has less resources expended i think is is huge yes i think that's that's right never use your cards that's ending up with more, uh, with more cards than your opponent is important for sure throwing more cards you can lose but if you have seven <laughs> cards in hand when you lose that's always a pleasure well, thank you so much for coming on, Rodrigo. Really loved having you on. Uh, if people wanted to talk to you more or, you know, hear, you know, some of the other thoughts you have, uh, where can people find you? 
Uh, I'm uh, on Twitter on Togores TCG or MTG. You can search with both. And I'm also streaming in Central European time from Monday to Friday uh, in Spanish from from 11 Central European time to four or five, depending on the day. So there you can find me pretty easy. Ask me anything. Awesome. And I'll make sure to put that contact info in our show notes too. That way uh, we have a, a easy way for our listeners to find you. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on again. And hopefully we get to talk to you soon. Thank you for having me here. And yeah, just keep rocking and making 2020s. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. All right. Welcome back. All right. Well, our next guest here is honestly one of the people, whenever I sit down at an SEG and I'm like, okay, well, I have to play. Who is it? And I see this name. I'm like, oh, gosh. Um, number of SEG top eights to his name. Uh, and very much one of the best lands players, I think, in the States. Uh, Dave Long, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, Dave, we are celebrating our 100th episode talking about all things Dark Depths. Um, and, you know, I think when we especially are sitting down talking about, you know, the local scene, you know, you being uh, in Maryland, us being in Pennsylvania, uh, we always, I'm used to having to play against you or Jarvis or someone like that, um, playing lands. Um, can, can you tell me how you got into the deck in the first place? So I, I was actually in an SCG event. It was standard for the first day, the old, like, standard, and then Legacy the second day. And I borrowed Phil Sagney's lands deck, which was like alpha duels, all Russian foil. It's like a gorgeous deck. And it was because I just did awful in this standard open, played like the worst deck I've ever played. This like Kibler green black <laughs> aggro thing that was awful. Oh, I, the Predator Ooth one? Yeah, so I ended up like switching and like going to the open trial with his borrowed deck, knowing nothing about lands, and just, you know, easily 4 0 the trial, and then went home and like, Bought a tabernacle, bought mox diamonds, and just like was off. And um, at that point, they were much less expensive than they are now, so it was it was an easier decision. I feel like getting in on the lands deck early, as far as price is concerned, it's really nice. Um, there was a like a local event that first place was like a tabernacle, and I was like, oh, cool, how much is the tabernacle? I was like, you know what, I'd rather just have like fetch land. So I like traded away a tabernacle for like a playset of, like, Scalding Tarns and Misties, and I was like, I'm an idiot, in <laughs> retrospect. But, you know, at the time, that was a, definitely a good deck to get into. Yeah, like, my Mox Diamonds were, like, $5 when I got them. That kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so insane. So, I mean, like, from, I guess, that, you know, trial, and I, I feel like you've definitely become, like, a land aficionado. Like, that is uh, the deck I, I've seen you just innovating and, you know, playing different variations of whether it is like a, the straight you know, life from the loam land version or even, you know, depth from time to time. Yeah, I think I, one of the things I really like about like both those archetypes is that they generally have a very good matchup against Delver and other fair decks. And that was something, especially on the SCGs, it seemed like a lot of the more skilled players, especially in Legacy, would gravitate toward these fair decks. So it'd be Delver or some mid-range blue deck or this kind of thing. And having a deck where like, when you get to the late rounds and you're sitting down against someone that's, you know, like a well-known player, it's awesome to be on the side of it where you have like a really good matchup. And then a lot of like lands and depths of bad matchups tend to be played more so by like lesser players. 
where you could kind of try to like fight and claw and like get the bad ones, but then have a really nice matchup against the more skilled players. Yeah, that's a really good like strategic place to be. I, you know, I'm I'm used to just like saying regardless of what's happening, I'm just going to play Delver, and like there's obviously some advantages to playing you know what I think is arguably the best deck uh, for the past couple of years. But I think playing a deck that routinely stops the best deck is also a very good place to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you mentioned how you got into the deck. Do you remember like how long ago that actually was? I'm pretty sure it was. 2013 it was right at the tail end of the two-day opens like i think i did i played in three i think two-day opens with lands and have you been like on lands slash depths basically ever since or have you ever switched off the deck i I guess i've experimented sort of like in local events like i've played like storm or death and taxes or this kind of thing more like a, a local or a 1k or this kind of thing but i don't i guess i was on dredge for probably like a six-month period, um, toward the tail end of the Renin Six era. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I, I won a PTQ at Grand Prix Atlanta with Dredge, and I played against. It was every round of like a seven-round PTQ on the top eight. I played against Delver, except for the last <laughs> round. <laughs> so like. Oh my gosh, that's awful. Yeah, so like Dredge <laughs> was great then, but but um, yeah, but in general, I've played a lot of vintage Dredge also. So like Dredge is something that kind of speaks to me. Um, but largely, other than these sort of anomalies, it's it's always been lands or depths. Yeah, looking through your results from uh, MTG Goldfish, just like all the way back to like 2014, it's just lands, lands, red, green. You could throw in a modern affinity here and there, but like, yeah, you're definitely playing a lot of lands and a lot of depth here. It's awesome. Yeah, I think I did every additional splash of red-green lands. Like, I've registered Naya, Chund, and Rug. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I think we're seeing a lot of people, you know, playing, I think, white for things like prismatic ending, things like that. What are you actually getting from, like, Rug or from Jund lands? So the, the Jund one is, like, one of my favorite builds of lands where it was... It was a Burning Wish build, um, and it didn't have Punishing Fire. It had Molten Vortex. This was, like, right after Magic Origins came out. Um, okay. So because of this, you just got to play, like, a Fetchland normal mana base. You didn't have Groves. And you could have, in the board, I had things like Thoughtseize and Dark Confidant. Hmm. So there was an open where, this was when Miracles was still pretty popular, and it was uh, having Abrupt Decays also in the main. Like, I just kept playing against Miracle players and just, like, crushing them by having these, like, sort of off-the-wall card choices in the archetype. Abrupt Decay is definitely one of the cards that, like, I, I'm shocked it has not kept up. I feel like yeah. that card was so powerful, and, like, it still does so much, and, you know, we don't we just don't see it anymore. Yeah, certainly, like, black is pretty down in Legacy. Like, it's it's been that way for a while now. Especially in, like, a fairer space. Ending kind of does everything that you want Abrupt Decay to do, except white is a playable color. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like a better color and a, like a more efficient... It's just a much nicer card at this point. Uh, what about the... Was it, that was John. What about the... That John, Naya, and... I can't remember the last comp- color. Oh, Rug. Rug. So I, I had two different builds of Rug. One of them was also the Tail End of Miracles, where it was... It played like Academy Ruins for Engineered Explosives. That, that was basically it. The other build I really liked was during the nonsense this was like the last eternal weekend before covid hit 
where we could ha play with cards like Oko and Ren and Six. So this was this was a build that was it was lands, but it had like seven of those planeswalkers in it. So mm -hmm. the idea was just to like turbo out these planeswalkers with like Mox Diamonds and that kind of thing. But then you still had like some loams and some uh, punishing fires and that sort of thing. But it was it was mostly like this sort of aggro-y planeswalker deck. Um, and then you got to have counter magic in the board. Okay. That, that entire era just blows my mind. The fact that there was a period of time we were playing <laughs> Oko and Ren and Six and Legacy, and everyone was like, "Yeah, this is this is not fine, but we'll keep doing it until they say we can't do it anymore." Yeah, like in retrospect, that deck felt super good, but I think it was just because it had these seven busted planeswalkers, and probably like you couldn't really go wrong if you slotted like those cards in. The the, the number of you know turn one Ren and Six, turn two, you know strip mine you until you die <laughs> games I've lost is. Very, very high. So. Yeah, and being able to like turn two Oko. I definitely had a couple turn one Okos, and those were like... Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's pretty rough. <laughs> so good. So, you switched a lot back and forth between, like, mainly red-green and then, like, the black-green depths, I want to say. But, like, obviously we've just gone over the other decks you've played. How do you kind of pick and choose when to play which version? So I guess, like, especially over the past handful of years, I guess not less so once, like, Saga came out, but, but uh, pre-COVID, I, I usually viewed it as, like, I want to be on Depths because I just thought it was a more powerful deck. Um, it has more answers. You get stuff like Thoughtseize. You're just much faster. But it was weighing... So, like, defaulting to that, but if I thought there were going to be lots of answers to Merit Lage, like, if people were just really gunning for it, then I would think about lands. Whereas on the land side... I would stay away from it if I was expecting a lot of combo, um, or it's things like sort of like miracles that where you expect, you know, blood moons or from the ashes or these sort of like dedicated land hates car hate cards. So I guess those are like the two. You can either go fast if the format's going fast, you can go fast with it. But if it's the format is going slower, you have like the better slow deck. Yeah, and then also just thinking about is like is there more hate for specifically Merit Lage or more hate specifically for like lots of lands, so be it Blood Moon or From the Ashes or those types of cards. God, From the Ashes is such a miserable card. Yeah, I remember playing my brother one time. He was on Miracles and like he had a couple From the Ashes in his sideboard. And uh, in my lands deck, we had the Besages at that point. And we had um, boils in the sideboard, so it was like the one-sided Armageddon mirror. <laughs> oh my gosh! The number of—I always love that too. Um, you know, we saw that in Modern pretty recently, uh, where people were you know playing Dried of the Lethian Grove, and you know just getting boiled after <laughs> after sideboard. Uh, it's just like the one of the greatest things where people are like, "And now I win the game." It's like, well, actually, you die. It's like, oh. Yeah. Somebody tried to get me with Boyle, actually, a couple weeks ago. Like, it's like, nah, I'm, I'm never putting Dryad into play if you just, like, are passing with four red mana up. I'm not, I'm not letting this happen ever <laughs> Red. <laughs> Keyword again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I don't think most people actually know this, um, but I, I was personally super glad when you switched to black green depths because I had uh, I used to play lands like I I bought my tabernacle in 2018 and I was super happy and I had a lot of fun with the deck but I was like I was fine I like I was good enough but I was never like 
that great with the deck. And then you switched to Depths, and I was like, oh, I'm so resistant to try it because I spent all this money on this Tabernacle, but I was like, I don't know. If Dave's doing it, he's pretty smart, so I'll follow him. And I just started winning way more with Depths than I ever did with Lands. So uh, thank you oh, yeah. for unlocking that for me. Yeah, I think one thing that was interesting, like especially with starting lands like relatively early, that like 2013, 2014 time, is it really changed in terms of like people's familiarity with the deck. Like in that era, like you would play against someone, and they would like almost everyone you played against had never played against lands before, even like testing just like straight nothing. So people would just play really poorly against you, and then by the time it got to like 2017, 2018, it's like not only did people know how to play against it, but they're like having specific sideboard cards just for that. Like, it's amazing looking back at some of these sideboards where, like, like Shardless Bug was really popular in that era, and, like, their hate card that would hit lands the best was, like, a one-of Pithing Needle. Like, it was, they were basically just, like, dead. Like, <laughs> maybe some meddling mages, like, but it was all kind of, like, a joke. Yeah, I'm looking back at, like, uh, what, 2016, uh, Noah Walker uh, winning a SCG Legacy with was it uh, Great Silver and yeah it's like you see the one Pithing Needle I, I guess the I guess I remember that the plan was kind of like Pithing Needle and then I could maybe Wasteland and then I could like Surgical your Dark Depth and like not die and like that with a and I could block with Baleful Strix maybe I mean like part of it too is like a lot of the better answers I feel like at this time would have been things like Vapor Snag it gets like something like Brazen Borrower is much better today than it, you know, would have been insane. I get think um, back in twenty sixteen, but there's really not a, really, a lot of good answers that aren't like dedicated hate cards. I guess the merge is the big one that comes to mind. Yeah, and at that point, people just weren't playing the deck, so like you, it didn't make any sense to have a couple land sideboard cards in your deck. Yeah, and it, you know now we now we see land. I mean, just depth in general. I I feel like it's one of the most uh, popular decks. Um, you know, one of the top ten most popular decks, and I definitely think it's like a a, a top tier choice uh, for people trying to get into the format. And like you said, attack the Delver deck that has been you know on top for a very very long time. Um, it's I'm actually surprised we don't see more people playing land strategies and depth strategies. Yeah, I've always been surprised that more people haven't played green white because it's as far as legacy goes, it's it's actually really affordable and it's. It has a much more normalized game plan than, like, something like Lands. Like, if you've played Modern, like, you can kind of... You know, there's stuff you have to learn, but it's it's closer, more, like, to get into that way. And certainly the Delver matchup's great. I think part of it is people are just scared to not play with Brainstorm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Like, there's definitely players that would just never not register Brainstorm, whereas I, I basically never have, or very rarely. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's, like, a lot of comfort and i've seen this kind of in the past couple days it's like you know do i play the best deck or do i play you know what i what i know and it's like there's definitely an advantage to both but like you could also learn a good deck like this um and like you said like you could have a deck that works in one situation and works in another deck that works in another situation and i think having options as a legacy player is, is a huge advantage um just like you kind of showed with switching between lands and depths and even, you know, switching to dredge for a little bit. Yeah, like, I think that's that's one of the things I think is, especially legacy players, tend to get stuck in sort of one archetype, and, like, whether it's good or bad, that's the archetype they play. And I'm sure early on, like, if I had bounced more, it actually would have been better. Or, like, there are, there are points where, like, lands was not particularly well-positioned and I still played it. 
where I like, probably should have switched to something else. So I've definitely gotten like quicker at switching between decks as it's gone along. So I've got two more questions specifically for you before we ask you the questions we're asking everyone. Um, one, I so you mentioned earlier that you play Vintage Stretch too, and I've seen you play like a, a sideboard like Merit Lage Juke. Is that actually like common in Vintage Stretch, or was that just a you thing? I don't really play the format. It was common in an era that was probably like four or five years ago now. Like it was, there was a little period where it was kind of a thing. Um, but now with the advent of all the pitch cards, it's really changed where like most builds of Dredge now play essentially just bazaars are the, pretty much the only lands. Because you know these things like Force of Vigor and all these things that can answer, uh, plus the extra counter magic like Force of Negation. And then my second question was, I think anybody who's watched you play a lot has noticed that you use an LSV token for, for your Merit Lage? Is there any like story behind that or just like that token? I like I saw them at an event and like they had given out that token for free at the event. And so I was like, hey, I'll have them sign it. And then I can't actually remember why I decided to like start using it. Like to be, to be honest, like, I mean, I think, I think everyone's a fan of LSV, like certainly at some level, but like, I don't, it's not like he's my favorite player of all time or anything like that. It was, it was sort of arbitrary. And then like, like one of the things I do with, with all the decks I play is if, it, if I ever top eight something big with a card, like a particular physical card, I'll never switch it out of the archetype. So a lot of my decks have some pretty mm -hmm. ugly card choices because it's like, well, that one's locked in for all time. <laughs> like, so like the token's <laughs> a little bit like that where it's like, I'd never switch out the token. <laughs> like, what do you think is the biggest mistake you've seen new players make? Specifically with lands or legacy in general, or how, sort of how broad? Uh, I mean, you can answer both if you want. <laughs> I, I think specifically with all the depths decks, it's the biggest issue I generally see is role assessment, where, especially like, like for instance, especially when people play like the lands archetype, they get in this mindset of like, I'm the control deck, I'm the ultimate control deck, and they'll just sit there and grind it out and grind it out and get like really into these game plans where it's like, I'm gonna wasteland every single land you have, I'm gonna like fully lock you out when it's just like, you should just merit lage them because you might lose to something. Um, and same thing with like depths, especially like the slow depths build where it had a lot of play, where it could be mid-range or it could be very aggro, picking the wrong moments to basically jam the merit lage. Either like jamming when you're way ahead and don't need to or holding off because you're scared that like maybe there are three cards in hand answer the merit lage. Like I think I did that a lot with depths where it's just like jam. Like Dilver has a couple answers, like make them have it. It's so weird hearing you say to jam after like we just talked to Tom Hep and he's like one of the most patient players I've ever <laughs> met. So he's very much on like the wait until it's like a lock. So it's it's weird hearing that that difference from two players who both have been so successful with the archetype. Yeah, I guess one of the other things I really like with the archetype is setting up the combo and then forcing my especially against control decks, forcing my opponent to hold up mana all the time because of the threat of the combo. So like like with the slower depths, I really liked having, you know, you have the combo and you just set it aside pretty much and they have to respect it. And then, but then you get like Dark Confidant going and they're not gonna plow the Dark Confidant because they, they see you have the onboard Merit Lage and this kind of thing. Like putting them in the squeeze, sort of like this vague Splinter Twin scenario. And did you want to give a 
the biggest mistake you see in legacy in general or just leave it at that i feel like days is definitely one of the most testing cards in the format especially to play against and i think a lot of people when i watch either <laughs> jam the critical spell into days when they don't need to or i think more often people tend to play against round days just exclusively like not realizing that especially as Delver's curve's gone up, like setting them back a land drop actually matters quite a bit. Uh, so if you can, just jamming in in early, especially if there's no threat, um, can actually be a pretty big advantage. Yeah, I, I'm definitely a big... Uh, I play around days probably too much. Uh, it's to the point, like, my friend makes fun of me, and he's like, when he plays against me, he's like, I think I'm just supposed to cut all the days because you'll just never... <laughs> never like encountered but i i remember back uh specifically when like arcanus was in the format i was just jamming everything i could on like turns one and two i was like please don't let that thing come down on turn right mm -hmm. yeah and i think right now especially with like breath of iteration being such a like a you know omnipresent card like i, I think being able to jam them and make them dazed on turn two it's like okay well i'm not gonna have my breath of iteration yet it's like okay well I'll cast it on turn three, maybe? It's like, no, I only have two lands now. It's like, okay. I want to take, wait till turn four? It's like, no, I dazed you again, so I'll wait. It's like, like the longer you delay that card from actually doing anything, uh, the better. I, I don't think people kind of respect that right now. Yeah, and it's like a very different play pattern than it used to be with like the old school Rug Delver, where it was like Tarmogoyf was the only thing that cast two. And it's like all one drops, and like the curve was so much lower that their days did very little to hurt the Delver player. Maybe like you couldn't triple spell or that kind of thing in a turn, but like it was much more minor than now with these things like expressive iteration. Hmm. Yeah, back in back in the day we're oh. brainstorming with the best <laughs> best card draw spell in the right. So this is a very similar question to the biggest mistake you see people make, but like what is your biggest advice for new players picking up depths? I guess it's pretty straightforward, but, like, get the reps in. Like, learn the matchups, be familiar. Like, the, like keeping with that, that idea about, like, when do you jam, knowing, all right, which are the matchups where I'm an aggro deck, be it with lands, be it with depths, but, like, I have to merit lage them absolutely as fast as possible, and I'm mulliganing to try to merit lage them absolutely as fast as possible, and which are the matchups where, you know, it's okay, I can sit around, I have time, or merit lage isn't the plan. Like, I think knowing from, like, your opponent's, first land drop or first two land drops or even their mannerisms, this kind of thing. Um, like, where am I in the matchup is really important. Like, one of the things my, my brother pointed out at one point was, like, uh, you can usually judge what type of uh, deck someone's playing by how long it takes them to present the deck. Like, there's no Miracles player that's going to be sitting there, like, four minutes into the round, slowly shuffling, like, just talking to you. This kind of thing. It's, like, it's always, like, reanimator guy, sneak and show guy. You know, it's, like, Whereas the person that's like, everything's crisp, it's all ready, we're like, ready to go, like, we're drawing, they're like, we can draw hands before we, like, the clock starts, this kind of thing, it's like, it's probably like some control deck. <laughs> like, it's a very good point. <laughs> it's very true. Uh, if, if I were actually trying to learn a, a Dark Depths archetype in particular... Um, would you recommend I, I would start with like a red green land, or do you think I would start with a like a green white depth or a green black depth, something like that? Yeah, I think I would go like I like green white because I think it's it's closer to normal Magic than lands. Lands is sort of it's like its own weird deck, 
And then green black tends to be a lot more punishing. Like if you if you jam and it doesn't work, you just tend to lose. So it especially if you're making or like mistakes early or these kind of things, like like I'm pretty sure the win rate of someone that's not very good with green black depths would be like particularly poor just because of that. Um, whereas green white, um, like the the consequences of missed decisions, I think are a lot lower. Yeah. I I would definitely agree with that. It's in green and black they like deal with your merit later and you're like, oh this really sucks and then in like green and white they deal with your merit later and you're like, ah, well, punch you with this eight eight yeah. nine of the rep. Right, exactly. Right? And I think the key for any new player is like getting the reps in. So like if you you wanna find the build you like where you're gonna enjoy playing it so you can get those reps in. Like where you wanna play it, where you wanna test, all these kind of things. So if you're not enjoying it then you're kinda of missing it. So of all the merit lane strategies you have played over the years, what has been your favorite matchup through time? So my, my brother I mentioned, Rob Long, he um, he was like a longtime Miracles player during like the counterbalance era, the top era. Um, and when I that was like when I was pretty much starting out on lands and the Miracles matchup was one that basically like pretty, like not great lands players would almost always lose it. But because I had my brother and he was willing to like sit around and play like four hours of lands v miracles where like no one else on earth would want to do this, um, I got like really good at that one and then could pretty like consistently beat the miracles players, which was something that most lands players couldn't do and was really important for like converting these tournaments. So even though that one's like definitely not favorable for lands, it's definitely the matchup I like by far played the most and it's really intricate. So I always enjoyed that one. That, I mean, that's really awesome to because I mean, Robin, his own right, is also a, a very accomplished player. So I mean, playing with him, I, I think, has to be great. Uh, it's when you're trying to test for a matchup that you that people tell you is bad. Uh, what do you What are you looking for? Like, how do you approach that kind of um, testing session? Yeah, I guess it's more important for these sort of slower matchups, like something like Reanimator, or like you just want like hate cards and to go as fast as possible and it's almost more in like the deck selection deck building part of it like i don't know that i don't think i've ever tested against reanimator because it's just like you kind of know what to do and like there's not a lot of like intricacy to it um whereas i think especially with these decks like lands where you have a bunch of different strategies and game plans and things tend to shift a lot pre-board versus post-board i think really getting the reps in to see how the games go and then decide you know, what are the, the sideboard cards that you actually want? Like, like, and in the end, we ended up adding, like, Besage you to the main deck because it was, like, discovering, like, okay, everything basically hinges on counterbalance. Like, if counterbalance doesn't work, then their whole, like, house of cards collapses because the whole idea is, like, they have a limited number of plows, and that works so long as you don't have loam going. Because if you have loam going, then you have more Merrillages than they have plows. Um, but if you break through the counterbalance part... So that, that was, like, a key. It's, like... What's, what are the, like, because you're not looking for, like, hate cards like Surgical Extraction. You're looking for these sort of weirder hate cards like Besage you. So actually, yeah, actually breaking down, like, how the game to play out. That's interesting. Um, and we're, we're kind of seeing that, uh, I'm seeing this at least a little bit in Legacy with the Delver deck, right? Because I, I think you see this weird Pyroblast battle, but... And then kind of underneath that, too, you're starting to see people switching from Lightning Bolt to Unholy Heat so they can actually deal with uh, opposing Murktide regions and uh, deal with uh, Ledger Shredders that have counters on them now. So 
Um, I, I think that is interesting being able to kind of look at a matchup and say, okay, well, what do I actually need to improve this? Um, not just, you know, what is the, out of my 15 cards currently in my sideboard, what, what do I bring in, what do I bring out, but, you know, what actually needs to change to make this more favorable? That's, that's interesting. And one last question before we let you go. If you could take any card that you have played throughout lands, depths, whatever, and just make it playable again in this current legacy format, like nothing else changes, just all of a sudden this card is like actually good again. What card would you pick? It's funny because it's not the one. The first one that came to mind is not a lands card. Um, well, it sort of is, but it's I would say him to Torak. I've always liked that card, <laughs> and it's like I guess like one of my big criticisms of Legacy right now is that it be like the the color pie aspect where it feels like it feels like black is the color of Thoughtseize and sort of well, Thoughtseize an unfair decks and Dark Ritual also an unfair decks and like it doesn't really that's about all it really has. Like I, I miss when it was like one of the core colors and you'd have like Grixis control decks and like it just feels like a part of Legacy is missing right now. So I think specifically it's like. Those sort of like black grindy cards. It's a good answer. And my least favorite card, yeah, which unfortunately is still learned a little, would have to be Veil of Summer. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of over that card, but it is uh, it's it's doing good work for its like tendrils of agony and stuff like that. But God, the card's a blowout. Yeah, I definitely one time scooped a game. It was, I scooped the match, and it was game one, and my opponent had a main deck veil on my Thoughtseize, and I was just like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> it's not my day. Like, uh, I, I don't blame you. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. there. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on. It was honestly amazing talking to you. I you know, definitely have respected your game for a long time, and just good to be able to sit down and talk with you. Um. I, well, I, I know you didn't have anything you wanted to plug, but um, I guess you will be at the Legacy Pit Open this year? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, looking forward to it. Good. Well, I guess we will definitely see you there then. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me on here. I really like the podcast. Oh. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for coming joining us for number 100. Yeah, exciting. All right, well, we will see you soon. All right, bye. <laughs> And welcome back. All right, we have our final guest this evening, afternoon. What would you call this, Mapson? It's, it's been a long day. I don't. I mean, it does. <laughs> it's whenever people are listening to it. Okay. So whatever time you, or I'm, I'm gonna like leave a blank, and you can just fill it in with whatever time it currently is. So um, our last guest, this blank, um, <laughs> is actually like I think one of my favorite players of all time. Um, and I think very easily one of the best content producers we have in Magic, um, as well as like if they had an SCG Hall of Fame, I think it would be named after <laughs> this player. Uh, we have Jerry Thompson. Thanks for joining the show. That's such a nice intro. You're one of the players that I have watched, and I I've tried to play, you know, Flash because of you. I tried to play uh, Doctor Depth because of you. Um, you know, even before, you know, we had the inkling of a podcast or anything like that, you know, I actually started doing uh, content creation, uh, partly, partially because I was reading your articles all the time and I was thinking I could do this. Um, didn't really work out too well, but it, it's gotten better over the, over the years. So. Well, as it, as it turns out, you can do it, but nepotism also helps. So 
If you didn't have that going for you, I understand. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, but no, it's it's really great to be able to talk to you. Um, You know, I I very easily in my mind one of the you know top five players um, in that in that category at least. You know, so it's really cool to be able to talk to you uh, about you know depth, especially for our one hundredth episode. Yeah, this is cool. Uh, I I think there was a definitely a solid string of a few years where this was the thing that I was associated with the most closely, right? And mm-hmm. now it's it's been like a decade ago or over a decade at this point. People people have forgotten. There have been way more new people coming in through Magic. Uh, a lot of people have just stopped playing Magic and everything. So this is maybe not even like the top 10 of things that people would associate with me at this point. So uh, I love talking about this deck, absolutely. And it's it's great to talk about it with you two also. That kind of feels so weird that, like, <laughs> this deck is over 10 years old at this point. So, for those who don't know, uh, Jerry, I think, was, at, you know, like he said, at a time, kind of known for engineering the Thopter Depths deck and extended a format that doesn't even exist anymore. So, like, what gave you the idea from this deck? Or, like, can you just give us a little bit of the history of it? Yeah, so this is this is from a weird time in my Magic career because... I was kind of on the way out. I had some some Pro Tour qualifications left in me, and I was kind of still writing some articles, but maybe not the full every single week kind of thing. It was mostly just when I specifically had something I wanted to write about. And my thought was that I was uh, dealing poker and uh, running some poker rooms and stuff like that, and I just thought that that was kind of where my career was going, but... I like playing in Pro Tours, so I was going to cash in the last two invites I had and uh, just probably, like, you know, sail off and try and do real-life stuff, right? So uh, we had this Pro Tour in Austin, Texas, and we, at the time, uh, I was living with Gabe Walls, and we were working with some amount of Channel Fireball people. I don't know if it was actually team channel fireball at that point or, or if we were officially on the roster or what the deal was because everyone knew that we were not going to like put in that much work but you know it's like <laughs> Luis and Paulo and and that sort of folks right so a uh, couple months before this pro tour someone mentioned that someone had built uh, a dark depth stack for extended on magic league which was if you were searching for technology it was just like in the furthest corner of the internet but uh it, yeah it was just you know like this forum this website that played some tournaments on a program called apprentice which was not magic online not arena it was just do everything yourself you know through the computer or whatever and i hated it i absolutely hated playing on apprentice i need some amount of that stuff to be automated right but occasionally there were some people that were playing through magic league that were really good like you know, Paulo was a person who came up through Magic League, basically. So I, I certainly, like, respected the players, respected the ideas, and I would always try to, you know, basically learn whatever I could. And Magic League had some, like, untapped resources, basically. And, yeah, someone had done okay in some tournament with, like, a very rough version of this deck, which was using Dark Depths alongside Vampire Hex Mage, which I think was, like, the newest print for the archetype, mm-hmm. the thing that, like, made it actually into a combo. And it was weird because the the first versions of the decks, I, I guess, were more closer analogs to what you see in Legacy now, where it's, you know, like, 
at least the black green versions, right? It's like you have you have Hex Mage and a bunch of tutors to find like both combo pieces, and you're just like really redundant on trying to put together Dark Depths plus something and make a 2020. And we tried those lists in Extended, and they, they just didn't really do a whole lot because they're just like a little bit slow, very vulnerable to removal, like Path to Exile, and just a bunch of cards that people were playing. So it was kind of like back to the drawing board. Uh, but then kind of shelved it for a week. Paulo said that he wanted to try some stuff like play Chalice of the Void main deck and like some Chrome Moxes and just try and like Chalice on one and lock out their paths. And that would maybe give you some sort of backup plan where you're not necessarily all in on the combo yourself. Like maybe you could actually just be like a disruptive deck too. So I don't know. Worked on that deck a little bit. We showed up in... Uh, Austin, and there were just a bunch of people who had the deck where it was just uh, people leaking information, effectively. And then I remember seeing some people that had uh, a little bit of Thopter Foundry, sort of the meek stuff, in their sideboard, which I thought was kind of interesting. And at first didn't really make a lot of sense to me, because it's like, well, if you're all in on trying to make this 2020, like, what the hell is a Thopter Foundry doing for you, right? But then you actually sit down, play some games, play against some of the control decks, and you realize that if you had, like, two of one and one of the other to tutor for in your deck, like, you just kind of had inevitability. Uh, so I think mostly people use that as a sideboard option, and the deck itself did not perform particularly well in the Pro Tour. I think, like, one made top eight or something, but I, I, I still liked the idea of the deck, and I, I thought it was still pretty solid, and I wanted to play the PTQ the next day just to play and, you know, clean some stuff up. Uh, ended up making top eight, lost to a blue control deck because I still was hesitant towards like Thopter Foundry stuff. And that was kind of when I knew that if you just combine this stuff a little bit more heavily, like maybe it makes something great. But then I went back to real life. So I was just kind of not really focusing on magic, not making content or anything. That thing was always sitting in the back of my mind. And then, I don't know, kind of like my life blew up, I suppose. Uh, the the poker rooms were not doing very well or getting shut down and like my relationships were falling apart and I just like pieced out in the middle of the night and had to figure out something to do and was like, oh, I guess I'm going to go back to making magic content. Saw that there were a couple extended PTQs and just like brewed up this deck, got third in the first one, fixed my problems, got first in the next one. It was just kind of all over. So this deck is actually like part of the reason why I think current players probably still have heard of you is because of Thopter Depth, actually. Maybe. I, I don't... Yeah, if they've been playing for 12 years or something. Well, just like... It's like the deck that, like, kept you in. I, I feel like, you know, your life very easily could have gone a different direction had it not been for, you know, this deck. Oh, yeah. No, that that's entirely true. I think that the, the success definitely made me want to write more. I had a lot of stuff to write about, and then I was getting just a lot of like recognition and respect and attention. And that made me want to go to tournaments again. So it did kind of just like hook me back in. I mean, I, I think I was already defaulting to magic because I didn't have a whole lot else to do, but it certainly made me like really excited and really happy to be playing magic again. I have some questions about the deck just cause like I didn't even know competitive magic was, <laughs> was a thing <laughs> at the time this was happening. Um, did the deck win more through like making merit ledgers or more through grinding people out with the softer sword plan by the time you were done with it? 
it it kind of varied on where the format was and what sideboard hate people were packing. I think the the thing that I liked about the one that I won the PTQ with and that people started copying where it was like three Thopter Foundry, two Sword of the Meek, like that package was definitely a bigger part of the deck than I had ever envisioned it being up until that point. I think the, the tournament before I played like two and one and then before everyone else was just playing it in the sideboard. But once once I had that package and it, it was heavy enough that you could reasonably rely on it, I would mostly just kind of like threaten the combo and make my opponent respect it and keep mana open for Path to Exile or whatever. And I would basically like never go for it or never use my combo pieces trying to assemble it. And I would just use that as a thing to sort of like put fear into them, eat their mana, and eventually would just Thopter Foundry people because that kill was very effective against basically all of my opponents at that point. But then you play against someone playing like Hypergenesis or Burn, and then you actually have this thing that you can like mulligan very aggressively to to actually beat these combo decks. So for the most part, I was trying to Thopter people and make them overreact to the Dark Depth stuff. And then for some additional context, like what were some of the decks that were in the format at the time? Like you just mentioned Burn and Hypergenesis, which I think it's pretty easy for people to imagine what those look like. But what else was there? Yeah, those were fringe decks, sort of like closer to tier two. But I think Zoo was kind of the the primary aggro deck. And it, it had a lot of flavors and it adapted a lot over the course of the season and eventually picked up stuff like Bant Charm because it was good against both the Merit Lage token and the Thopter Foundry piece. And then, yeah, they started doing stuff like sideboarding Damping Matrix, you know? So uh, it, I think they started as, like, slightly bigger, like, Knight of the Reliquary versions, and then maybe it was like, oh, well, we need these clunky cards like Bant Charm and Damping Matrix to interact, so maybe we just cut Knight of the Reliquary and just be more aggro and maybe lean into, like, Tribal Flames and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, that was that was the primary deck, and then the blue decks, the blue control decks, were sort of like the Thopter Depths deck, but not really trying to mess around with Dark Depths and Urborg and Vampire Hexmage. So you'd see a lot of the same stuff. It would be like Chromox, Muddle the Mixture, Thirst for Knowledge, Thopter Foundry, but then they would have you know Tezzeret into Ensnaring Bridge or just some Wrath of Gods and Path to Exiles and Oblivion Rings and whatnot. So. It was it was for the people who were cowards, more or less, and, and, and really didn't want to draw like two legendary cards at the same time. So they're like, well, I'll just I'll be all in on the Thopter Foundry thing. But like I said, uh, that that just didn't leave you much of a game plan against something like Hypergenesis or Burn. So uh, and honestly, I don't know. It's like I remember the big decks, right? And the, like I look at the deck list and I remember specific things that I was trying to fight. But then it's like, you know, what was the third or fourth best deck in the format? I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, just like looking through some of the things from uh, 2010 GP Houston. Um, like, you know, the, you do have things like the Hypergenesis deck, like you mentioned before. You know, uh, hits like uh, Angel of Despair and Bogarden Hellkite, Progenitus. That deck was nasty, I remember. <laughs> Yeah, it was very good. Uh, um, a lot of people wanted yeah. to get banned, and eventually it, it did get banned when Modern was formed. Mm-hmm. Um, also, things like Scapeshift, too. Um, that's one I, I do remember being pretty good. It was really good in Standard at the t- around that time, too. So, um, made a transition into Extended. Yeah, this is one of the decks that... Like, Paulo made a pretty good metagame choice. I'm, like, you know, looking at... 
Billy look at Paulo's list from GP Houston where he plays like some repeals main deck and into the Royal and stuff because you can't lose the 2020, but your game plan is also like pretty good against just Thopter Foundry making a bunch of one ones. So like pretty good call from Paulo. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of these decks too, and I'm, I'm trying to remember some of these, like I remember there was like the elves deck uh, which I know saw some changes, but the elf deck was around. Um, I came across this from the same GP actually. Um, a Boros list playing like Goblin Guide and played a GP step length. Yeah, this was burn with basically like some ball lightnings, like some heavy hitting creatures instead of more lava spikes. Yeah, Zekdar Shrine Expedition was insane at the, at the time. Yeah, and you see the four ghost quarters in the mana base, right? Like that was the one of one of the best possible cards against Dark Depths X Mage. And just being able to, like, you have a good reason to play it because you get to go cover your own flagstones for your plated GOPs and stuff. So, I don't know. I kind of like that deck. Yeah. Hmm. This format actually sounds so sick to me. <laughs> I thought it was really enjoyable. I thought this format was really cool. I was playing a uh, Death Cloud deck, uh, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure if I can find one, but um, I was playing, you know, Death Cloud, Life and the Loam, um, Tarmogoyf. Uh, this is one similar to it, playing like smallpox and a bunch of. This is more creature heavy than what I was doing, but uh, it was a real. It was a really neat format. It was very diverse. I felt like, um, but you know, towards the towards the time that that extended was ending and modern was, I guess it was called overextended for a little bit. I think uh, was the name that Gavin Gavin came up for it. You could definitely. Feel I felt like the decks were converging. I, I really did feel like the uh, Doctor Combo Depth deck was just better than everybody else's plan. Uh, Jerry, I don't know if you feel the same way about that. No, I definitely do, and I think for most weeks in the format, I just recommended that that people played that deck, which is kind of unheard of. You know, metagames typically tend to shift and everything, but even three months into the PTQ season at least for the U.S. or, or North America, uh, Thopter Depths had won something like 60 or 70% of the PTQs because it was, it was just that good and it was so hard to beat and you lean super hard into fighting the, the Hexmage plan and then you just end up losing to Thopter Foundry. So it, it's a thing that's like really frustrating for uh, definitely newer players but even like intermediate players where you know game one you kill them with the dark depth so they just like load up on stuff for that and then the next game you kill them with Doctor foundry and they're just like this is so frustrating what the hell happened you know and especially since very few cards are good against the dark depths plan and the Doctor foundry plan so it was it was just brutal to be able to play in a ptq and pick on someone who had not put in like hundreds of hours in the format and you're talking about like the format being diverse and whatnot it's like yeah technically it was but it was also one of those formats where there were just some things that were so much better than everything else and if you weren't playing with them you were doing yourself a disservice and that was just you know one of those formats and so yeah you could maybe top eight a gp with like white black pox but was that your best best chance of winning the tournament probably not so, kind of an obscure question here, an obscure hypothetical. You show up to a modern tournament today, and uh, you don't have your deck with you, and the judge says, you know, for this one event, they'll let you register any, like, 
any version of Thopter Depths you have registered at a previous event, what do you think your chances are in, a, in like today's modern format playing this deck? I mean, this deck was super sick 10 years ago, but modern is, you know, <laughs> also 10 years of new cards. And I think we all know at this point that the new cards are quite good. So I don't they know. They are very good. But you, you get like Chrome Mocks and you get, uh, you get Dark Depths, which are cards that are banned in modern. Technically, yes. But how good is Dark Depths when... You know, people just have, like, solitudes for you, right? I guess, you know, what am I playing against? Am I, am I playing against, like, Murktide? Because I would clown Murktide. That probably would be a really yeah. good matchup. <laughs> be really good, But yeah. I, I'm not sure that it would do all that well against Omnath. And, okay, so, hold on. Let me <laughs> let me clarify this. Uh, I was a late Jace the Mind Sculptor adopter. And at... The GP that we were looking at for, I think it was Houston or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, S- S- San Jose was the first one, actually. And then and then Houston was, like, kind of towards the end of the season. In in San Jose, people had, like, one or two Jaces main and then more in the sideboard. And if I could do that, I'd be super happy. Then then I might I might take my chances against Four Color. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll run out Dark Depths if I have it. Yeah, you can solitude me. That's fine. I'm just gonna, you know, rebuild with a Jace and hope that that sticks, and eventually try and kill you with some Thopters. Uh, that plan is is pretty hard, though. Like, you don't have a combo for it. We weren't playing like Time Sieve. There was no Urza, um, so it is just killing them the hard way. And then they have random prismatic endings and whatnot. So it is gonna be really hard to kill them. I feel like eventually you just get Emrakuld and you lose. Okay. So follow up question. They unban Chrome Mox and Dark Depths in Modern. Do you think you can build, like, just a cohesive version of the deck that is then, like, Tier 1? Well, why do you think the, say, the green-black versions of Dark Depths look like how they do in Legacy? Uh, because they're, <laughs> they're really good at what they do that way. Right. So, yeah, is there any reason to then splash in this extra combo or do you want to just pack in redundancy uh you you would probably just go for redundancy yeah i think so too yeah so i i, I think elvish reclaimer is really good yeah and i mean there there's that's mutant stage also which we never got to play with dark depths and extended so yeah mm. you you unban chromox dark depths i i think you just end up basically trying to play what the legacy decks look like you know you play uh, Reclaimer, Depth Stage, whatever kind of like tutors and Sylvan Scrying sort of stuff you can fit or want to fit. Uh, whatever sort of disruption you want to play with. If it's like Thoughtseize, Decay, whatever. And I'm sure that that deck is quite good. Yeah, I do. Uh, this It does make me wonder how much when you're looking at the green-white depth in like legacy currently, it, it really does remind me a lot of this deck. I mean, obviously, very different card selections, very different colors, but you know, having two plans that obviously do have some overlap in terms of you know being able to play a certain type of game, uh, but two plans that are still so hard to actually combat uh, effectively, at least. I mean, like you can bring in graveyard removal to you know make the knight smaller 
or you can you know, bring in bounce spells for a merit lage, but it's really hard to like have something that is good on both counts. Like, I think that's just a you know this. I feel the Doctor Depth's deck is really just a uh, spiritual you know anth- ancestor predecessor predecessor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of of the uh, green white deck. Yeah, I think so too. It's I mean, you look at this deck list and it's, it has so much nonsense, right? It's like muddle a mixture, beseech the queen, a random into the royal, uh, just like stuff and packages that you don't see at all today. And now you're just like, yeah, I play like reclaimers and knights, and those both like search for my combo and kill my opponent. And it's just like such a, a much cleaner, better way to do things. Like we we had to get fancy mm-hmm. back in the day, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, like, honestly, I think in, in terms of context, too, like, you know, Muddle the Mixture was a really good card for, like, Scape Shift, things like that, too. Like, there are definitely worth some benefits to playing, you know, these cards, besides the fact that Muddle the Mixture is also a tutor for Vampire Hexmage and things like that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it, w- it, I, I def- it wasn't as good as playing something like Negate Main Deck, but there were it had its moments. It was also hard to cast, but... Yeah, it was, mm. it was solid. It was very serviceable, and there are definitely... There were definitely games where your opponent's like, oh yeah, I forgot you could cast that card, <laughs> right? Like, it actually has dice. Yeah. So, one of the reasons I always associate you with uh, this deck, still to this day, even though, you know, like I said, this was well before my time. Well, I shouldn't say well before. But anyways, is because you won an SCG Invitational and got yourself turned into a Merit Lage token. Can you just tell us, like what that felt like (laughs) well the around that time things were weird because now you think of scg and wizards as having like a pretty reasonable relationship but i think back then it wasn't that good and like scg is you know starting their own tournament circuit and wizards is not super happy about it and i don't know like how petty they're being or whether this is stuff they would normally do or whatever, but SCG was like, okay, you know, what what kind of tokens can we make? And they're just like, nothing. If, if, if like, we make a token of it, you can't make it, basically. So then I, I was basically like, I want to make, I want to be on a Thopter, right? Because I, I like the Thopter Foundry part more than the Dark Depths part. And I think being a, like a Merit Lage, like a 2020 Indestructible is is like narcissistic <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know, that's kind of a bad look. But then they were just like, no Thoppers, absolutely no Thoppers. And it's like, well, I mean, you can't, can't stop me from making like an avatar, right? It like doesn't say Merit Lage on it or anything. So that's, that's kind of how it just ended up being that was that a lot of my other options got removed. I didn't know that uh, that they ever had a contentious relationship with Watsy. I mean, it, it it was it was like a love hate thing, right? It's like I think they they both love that each other exists and they kind of like need the other person. But then when SCG starts doing their tournament series and Wizards is like, "Yo, you're you know cutting into like our PTQ revenue or whatever." Um, and like GP revenue, like they're, they're not going to be pretty happy about it, but eventually they just realized like, oh yeah, all of this stuff can coexist. But yeah, I mean, there, there were times where SCG was not allowed to run like any GPs, right? And like eventually they got over that hump and started figuring out how to work together and whatnot. 
Um, anyways, right, do we Ma- actually have Matthew, more do- questions or like? <laughs> I, no, I was gonna say, do you wanna do an ask your wrap up questions? I, I just don't feel like they make sense. That's fair. I mean, we could like generalize them. So like, uh, so Jerry, the wrap up questions we've been asking people. Um, you can just say if you want to answer them or not. Yeah, hit me. We can record it for real. I'll, I'll just make uh, stuff up. It's fine. <laughs> so I guess the one is a good question. We've been asking people like what their favorite matchups like were. Uh, we've been asking like biggest piece of advice for somebody who's new to depth strategies. Um, biggest mistake you see people making, but like the mistakes people were making ten years ago may or may not be the same <laughs> mistakes people are making today. I don't know. Um, yeah, basically. You know, you would think that I would want to be playing these decks, right? But two things. One, I'm addicted to Brainstorm. And two, when they don't have kind of like a nonsensical backup plan, I'm not really about it, you know? So I I tried a, a, a lot to see if I could get like Brainstorm Dark Depths into Legacy or whatever. It's just too bad, you know, which I'm sure y'all have also probably tried and found out, but... Uh, it existed for a while recently. Well, good for them. God bless them. <laughs> uh, yeah, so unfortunately, my, my Dark Depths knowledge and the advice that I could give is mostly grounded in, like, 2010. Yeah, so maybe not that helpful. But uh, f- favorite matchups were, were definitely the ones against the blue decks because, like, again, like, you would try and, like threaten the combo but then you look at everyone's deck list and they all have like three repeals and a bunch of path to exiles and even like oblivion rings and stuff and maybe they have like a random ghost court it's just not gonna work out right it's just no chance in hell so you're like all right i'm gonna side out a couple hex mages a couple depths maybe like fourth urborg and i guess try and match them with what they do uh just eventually try and assemble thopter foundry but Maybe if there's a window or they sideboard out all their Path to Exiles or something, anticipating it, then maybe you can catch them with a 20-20. Maybe there's a game three where you only have 10 minutes left, and you're just like, all right, I don't have time to mess around with these this late-game stuff. Like, I'm going to just jam all the Hex Mages back in there and just try and get them. Uh, so that, that back and forth was really cool. And just trying to, uh, you know... Cap- capitalize on the fact that they maybe had some dead cards and that you have discard where mostly they had counter magic you're both playing card advantage stuff and like these late game engines and it it was so intricate and so awesome and if they if either party basically messed up slightly it was game over but then like jace came out and kind of ruined it because it was like you resolve a jace and just the game ends so it sort of took the fun out of it but th- those were definitely my favorite matchups. And I transport me to a time where I can play a matchup like that, and I will be all about it. Yeah, Jace does tend to ruin things. Also, I just have to share that. While, we were, while you were, <laughs> were uh, saying all that, I just watched a nun roller skate by blasting Childish Gambino on a, <laughs> on a boombox. <laughs> and it was just the, the most random sight I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> So I said, God bless him, and she's like, I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> so if you were, you know, getting into, I, I guess just in general, right? Like, you're getting into modern, you're getting into legacy, you're getting into pioneer, whatever, right? 
what advice would you have for somebody getting into uh, competitive magic? Well, assuming your confidence level is high that you found the format that's right for you. Like, maybe your area only plays Pioneer, only plays Modern, maybe you don't have a choice. But I think it would be kind of devastating to try and dip your toe into it and be like, well, I guess I'm doing Modern, only to find out $2,000 later that you just absolutely despise Modern, you know? So, <laughs> if you can, figure out what you're getting into. You know, watch watch some games, have people... Uh, talk about the format to you, maybe show up to an FNM or, or whatever you're going to be playing and just watch a little bit or like have someone borrow you a deck or play in between games or something. Like just make sure that it's a thing that you want to get into because especially modern can be pretty pricey. Um, but yeah, once, once you decide like, okay, modern is it. I want to want to dip my toes in here. This is what I want to mess with. I think, uh, yeah, just try and do your research, figure out sort of like what macro archetypes exist and what you would enjoy playing because I would imagine that most people off the bat are not going to have access to 10 different decks, right? So it's possible that whatever deck you build off the bat, you might be stuck with it for a couple years. So try and figure out what sort of thing you're interested in, if that format has the sort of thing that you're interested in, and then just try to learn the format from the lens of that one deck. And hopefully it is something that you can enjoy because I think a lot of people either, you know, maybe they have a little bit more money. So they're like, I'm just going to buy three decks or they have a pretty wide collection within their friend group so that they can switch decks at will. Like they might just play a deck for a couple weeks, get bored, or maybe they're losing too much and they just bounce off it immediately. But I think sticking with a thing at the very beginning when you're trying to learn everything is is so valuable to getting you to a point to where you're actually not only competent but also proficient so if you're you know this is, this is my first time playing modern with this deck like stick it out maybe longer than you probably planned on because if you only play for a couple weeks and then bounce off to another deck and then try and learn that from scratch you're not really building a fundamental base of anything of knowledge to to build off of or anything so just yeah stick stick with the thing for at least a couple months and and learn from there and i think from there you probably have a good bouncing off point to, if you want to switch a deck try something new or maybe even if you want to try another format yeah that's good advice i mean like the number of people who you know learned something like you know i actually started off with Dark Depths. So that was not Dark Depths. So, um, <laughs> I actually started off with Death and Taxes in Legacy, and you know that gave me a really good idea of what the format looked like and how it interacted with. And eventually, I actually I got my deck stolen, so I actually had to switch decks. But yeah, yeah, um, that's that's yeah. unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Uh, but you know, being able to have the idea about what the format looks like and how it behaves, um, you know, learning. The second deck, learning the third deck, etc., etc., past the first deck, I think, gets a lot easier once you have a really great understanding about how the format kind of works. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, I don't know, that's just a thing that people don't really talk about as far as getting into a format from scratch. It's always like, you know, try all the decks or whatever. And it's like, but how, how do you ever absorb any information from, from that, right? Like... Uh, it just baffles me. Like, obviously, people learn in different ways and everything. But if I was just, like, playing a new deck in a brand new format every week, there's just no way in hell I'd be able to 
be able to remember anything or even figure out what I like, you know? It would just be too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a lot of intricacies with the with the format, and, like, I think you cannot master how to cast Brainstorm correctly in, in a week or two weeks. Um, and, you know, even you're talking about depth, like, you know, I've played a couple, you know, leagues with green-white, and getting one playthrough with Mapson is a hundred times more useful than anything that I'm doing. Um, Just, you know, but you need the reps, you need the experience, you need, you know, somebody or someone writing content or, you know, giving you coaching, something like that to really get you to the next level. So I think that's, yeah, it's definitely a good good observation. Yeah, I definitely agree with that too. So if your friends can help you out, you know, provide any feedback, watch, watch your videos, maybe not tell you what to do live or whatever, but definitely reviewing games or screenshots or whatever. I think that's probably the next best step. Right, well, thank you so much for stopping by. You know, we really appreciate you stopping by for our 100th episode. It means a lot. Uh, you could take some time out of your uh, evening to, to hang out. I was going to say, don't you dare say busy, busy night or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, congratulations on a hundred. This is awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah thank you. All right, let's get, let's get out of here. Uh, once again, thank you, Jerry, for stopping by. Um, with a, I know with it, people probably know where to find you a lot, but, I mean, you're on the Arena Decklist podcast, uh, which comes out every week, and that's the, probably the best way if they want to hear your thoughts or opinions, probably the best way to find you. Yeah, uh, or, or Twitter, you know. I, I like answering general questions, uh, on Twitter, as long as you know they have some thought behind them, right? As long as it's a thing that you actually want to know, instead of like what color socks I'm wearing. Like, I will, I will almost always engage in smart discussion. All right, cool. All right, well, thank you again, and uh, I guess we're gonna wrap up from here. So, uh, I guess uh, once again, everybody, thank you for stopping by for episode 100. It means a lot that. You, as our listeners, have joined us from, you know, dogs barking to babies crying to uh, showcase qualifying tournaments and turtle weekends and secret GP wins. Like, it's it's awesome that you guys uh, stuck with us through 100 episodes. So just, you know, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you very much for your love, your support, um, and just engaging with us from week to week. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jerry. All right. Well, in that case, I guess I'll see you next week. See you next week. All right. Bye.